dead of night, as people sleep, that's when the spirits creep. As the bell tolls three, dark things take power. We like to call it the supernatural hour. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. It is the Supernatural Hour, and I am your host, Castle. Um, and it's kind of an interesting, it's going to be a unique show tonight. Uh, with me tonight, we've got uh, our host, Beaker, a.k.a. Tim. What's happening? And we have got Mike Big Stack Pumba, the third Esquire Claus. Call, call me Claus. Yeah. Speaking of Claus, you are uh, about to start your Santa Claus season. It is. It's Santa season, so get your jingle on, folks. Speaking of Santa season, so uh, we have discussed it, and this is going to be actually our last show of this year. Uh, we're going to take a break for the holidays. Uh, and be- one of the reasons is because Mike, it's time for him to put on his Santa suit and go be sure. Santa Claus. Now, real quick, uh, just a quick plug for Mike. If you guys want Mike to come be Santa, I promise you won't bring a Ouija board. Uh, <laughs> how can they get a hold of you to have you come be Santa? Um, let's see. What is the best way to email that? Or to, I guess the best way would be to contact uh, me. You can find me on Finlay on uh, Yahoo. Not, you're going to edit this part out here. So the best way, hey, you can email me directly at just at MikeFindlay at Yahoo.com. Um, that's probably the, the easiest way. And how do you spell Findlay for those who yeah, It's don't. F as in Frank, I-N-D-L-A-Y. Uh, since I don't have one of those cool Mike at org emails that, uh, you know, you can call and, or email and complain to. <laughs> no one has one of those. We've actually had to shut those down. Yeah, we uh, they're with our provider. They went to, from a different email service. And so now it costs us an exorbitant amount of money for each email address. So we have, there's only a couple of those anymore. Uh, the org email addresses. Um, so, yeah, this will be our last episode of the season. Uh, we'll be coming back after the new year, um, and we're actually going to be doing some retooling on the show. Um, we're actually going to turn the show over to Mike and Tim. Uh, I'm actually going to be leaving the show after this episode, uh, and I just want to tell everybody I appreciate everybody's support. Um, I'm, just, I'm entering a new chapter of my life. I've got some different things I'd like to do. Um, and I think it'd be great to get some fresh voices, some fresh personalities, and uh, kind of bid everyone a farewell and say thank you. If you guys see me, I'd be out and about saying hi. Uh, still working with the Radio Runner Network, um, but again, just taking a step back off this show. Uh, and I just I appreciate everybody. Uh, I'll miss everybody. I'll miss the fun times. Uh, and hopefully, if there's some events, I will catch you at those events. So, um, what are we what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we're talking about a uh, serial killer, one of the first ones in America that uh, people are aware of. He's actually spawned the, he's been the inspiration for characters in three different movies, including Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that would be Ed Gein. This guy's so creepy, by the way. If you guys don't know anything about, I didn't know much about Ed Gein until uh, we started uh, doing the show, and Ed, or and Tim has talked about him several times. Um... This guy, this is the first time when doing research, you know, watching documentaries and reading that I've gotten, like, the full-body shivers and just been 
creeped out where I had to step away from my laptop. So the thing is, is there's a lot of serial killers out there, and I've heard you know a, a lot of names. I mean, you've got uh, John Wayne Gacy, you've got Ted Bundy. Um, there's a bunch of them, and you hear Ed Gein's name, um, and you know, in my mind, when we kind of pick this topic, I'm thinking, oh, it's just you know another serial killer, you know, another ten dead prostitutes. Um, but as I start doing the research. Uh, yeah, this guy's off the charts. Uh, this guy's legitimately nuts. Uh, in fact, he's one of the few serial killers that did not go to prison. Um, he yeah, actually sure right he actually spent the rest of his existence uh, in a criminal insane asylum, uh, basically a state criminal hospital for the criminally mentally ill. Um, this guy is nuts. Um, so let's start a little bit about his past. Uh, Mike, do you want to run with that? Sure. Um, just a little bit about his background. Um, his dad was George Gain. Uh, George uh, was orphaned at the age of three after his uh, father and his mother and his older sister were swept to their deaths in a flash flood. And he was brought up by his maternal grandparents. Always had low self-esteem as in his teenage years he turned to alcohol and drank throughout his life. Um, things changed for him a bit when he met Ed's mother, Augusta. She was uh, described as a fierce, stocky woman who was fanatically religious and obsessively outraged by the loose morality of the world that they lived in. Um, she, uh, they got married on December 4th in 1899 and uh, lived in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Their marriage was far from perfect, though. You know, it's not quite the little picket, white picket fence marriage that everybody hopes for. Um, he drank a lot, and with her being so strong-willed, she actually dominated him. He was weak and unreliable, and it wasn't long before his life was just misery. Um, this led more and more to his reliance on alcohol, and it often ended in violent uh, disputes between the two of them. But despite that, on uh, January 17th, 1902, they had a baby. Uh, they named him Hem Henry, and Augusta always had a really hard time bonding with Henry. Uh, she wanted a girl, and... Uh, just didn't like just didn't like men, didn't like boys. Uh, so she never really bonded with him. Um, she wanted a girl so bad, they decided to have, that when she finally got pregnant with her second uh, pregnancy, she spent every night uh, praying that God would give her a girl. And on August uh, 27th, 1906, she gave birth to a healthy little boy named Edward, and she was pissed. She felt betrayed by the Lord, um, she was just upset, but she did decide to finally embrace him, embrace the child. Um, but, uh, she, in her words, uh, she had just said that she decided that he will not grow up like the usual lustful foul mouthed males who used a woman for their own perverted pleasure. And she was confident that Ed would come out different. Well, let's be and honest. He and he was. Oh, he, he definitely he was. came out different. He definitely came out different and he was not a lustful Foulmouth person. I mean, he speaking, he was an upright person for speak, a while. Speaking of foulmouth, yes, I'm just going to jump in here and say that his mom was nuttier than squirrel shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so she uh, she was kind of a religious zealot. Um, kind she, of. She actually even talked about these lustful foulmouth men. She went off and on about uh, how women in the world were whores and harlots, and uh, I mean, she basically hated everybody. N nobody was as righteous and pious as she was. Uh, and she was bound and determined to make sure that little Eddie um, knew that women were horrid, uh, sinful, 
vile beings, along with the fact that men were lustful, horrible human beings. Uh, and she basically emasculated him as a child. I mean, just on every level, just kind of dominated and emasculated. Uh, well, that, and that, that played into his social life as well. They they uh, had a grocery store for a while. They sold the grocery store and moved to a small dairy farm near Camp Douglas, Wisconsin, before making the permanent move to a farm in Plainfield, uh, Wisconsin, or just outside of Plainfield. And she kept their household pristine, and the extreme remoteness of the farm meant that she could keep herself and her sons away uh, from what she described as the scandalous, low moral standards of the people of Plainfield. She hated the people there. Uh, she took care of her son's strict religious training so they didn't go to church. They learned everything they knew about God from her. And they never left the farm only except only to go to school. But uh, they go to school, and because they were kept so isolated from the other children, they had a hard time making friends. Anytime they did make friends, she quickly put an end to it. And uh, Ed actually had a really miserable time at school. Uh, he was often made fun of. He had a droopy eye and kind of a lopsided grin. And due to his, his mother's uh, influence and uh, desires for him, he actually uh, developed a pretty effeminate manner. He was uh, very femmy. And that quickly became an easy target for bullies. Well, he's also an indifferent student uh, at the time. I mean, his, he wasn't spectacular, wasn't terrible. Um, and just kind of give you an idea of what Ed Gunn was like, is later in his life they actually gave him an IQ test, and he actually scored as incredibly average. I mean, he wasn't like a brilliant mastermind. He was like me. He, he was, oh, wait, no, probably better than me. He was actually just like you. No, but I mean, he wasn't dumb by any means, but he certainly was no super genius. He was just an incredibly average, effeminate kid. With okay, a, not like me. Never mind. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, I'm describing Mike. Uh, I wear a skirt, but I am not effeminate. <laughs> but yeah, uh, just a kid with a mom who was nuttier and squirrel shit. Yeah. Um, so, miserable at school because he had uh, all the bullying... A home life was miserable as well. His father regularly beat him because with these drunken rages his dad would get into. His mother's always ranting about morality and religion. And to add to all this, the farm's failing, and Ed retreated more and more into his own little world. Um, as they uh, got into adulthood, the uh, two brothers took on odd jobs around the town. Uh, well, they also worked at the farm. They were known as hardworking, reliable, and trustworthy individuals. They were generally liked. Um... By this point, their dad's alcoholism took its toll, and in 1937, his health failed, and he had to be taken care of by his wife and boys, and they detested him. Uh, they hated him. Uh, it would be three more years before George, poor George, was finally released from his misery, and he died on April 1st in 1940 due to heart failure. Um, his wife and sons never mourned uh, for his loss. In fact, they were relieved that they didn't have to take care of him anymore. Um, neither of the brothers were uh, involved in the war. This was around World War II. Was, it was raging at the time. Um, Henry was too old to be drafted, and due to Ed's droopy eye, he couldn't pass the physical exam due to slightly impaired vision. And so because of this, there were a lot more men going off to war. This meant that there was a lot more work to be done, and the brothers started to get more work uh, outside of the farm, helping out on other farms and, and whatnot. It's kind of interesting because they were... Uh, I was watching some documentaries... Um, on Ed Gein as part of my research. And they actually interviewed some uh, people who worked with Ed back in the day, and they said that he was, for the most part, he's a likable guy. Uh, they said that, you know, people in town would be like, hey, Ed, you know, our my, my door is but has a busted hinge. Can you come work on, on it? And Ed would be like, oh, yeah, I'll come work on the hinge on your door. You know, he'd come over and work on, you know, 
widow's houses. He would, uh, I mean, he was generally considered in the town to be kind of a little bit of an outsider, but very helpful and hard worker. Um, I guess they have farms where they did hire a bunch of farmhands to come in and, you know, do the harvesting and whatnot. And he was there and everybody said, oh, you know, he's likable enough. You know, he's a little different. He's a little bit of a loner, but he was, you know, likable and he worked hard. Now, one of the documentaries I saw is that Henry had a good reputation for being a grafter, which is where you're grafting different uh, trees together. Um, but Ed had a knack for kids, and he actually babysat for a lot of local families, and the kids loved him. So, <laughs> who, who do you want for your babysitter? Ed Gein or uh, John Wayne Gacy? Yeah, well, Gein. Yeah, well, Gein, Gein. was a better. So, if, if you, as we'll get into it, I think your kids were probably okay with Ed. He's probably more of that corny weirdo that, well, entertained him. You know, the bad thing about a podcast is I wish we could kind of show a picture of what this guy looks like. Oh my gosh, because he's just. He's very skinny, kind of lumpy looking, uh, kind of has, like you said, the weird kind of lazy eye thing going on, and just generally kind of a creepy looking dude. Yeah, when they made a movie about him, one of the movies that I've seen, they had Kane Hodder play him, and I don't know if you know who Kane Hodder is, but he played Jason Voorhees in the majority of the uh, Friday the 13th movies. Kane Hodder is basically... He's a, a a buff like like he's a sh- kind of a short stocky guy, but he's extremely like like built uh, like he's a weightlifter, and he looks absolutely nothing like Ed Gein. But that's who they had playing in one of the Maybe movies. Maybe they should have had him like cast it more as like a Steve Buscemi type of a guy. Yeah, Steve Buscemi would have been a much better uh, a better choice than. Uh, oh yeah, this Kane Hodder looks nothing like Ed Gein. Yeah. Uh, he's, that's just one of the movies. They, there was like two movies, and the other guy looked a, a lot closer. Yeah, but. Kane's a little too muscly and a little too fleshed out. I, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess Ed wasn't really like wimpy, you know, spiny, but he just what was it was not. A, it was smaller and just very thin, and just I mean, his face was very bony because of how thin he was. So I mean, his cheeks were kind of prominent. Uh, but yeah, just kind of a, you look at him, and he. Kind of has a I'm a serial killer look to him. Right. So before I became a serial killer, though, um, so Ed, uh, you know, like I said, babysitting kids. They're helping on the farms. Had a great reputation. Uh, the two brothers had a generally had a good relationship, but there was some anino- animosity uh, between them because of the closeness of the relationship that Ed had with, with Mom. Henry was concerned that they were just too close, and he would often uh, pick on Ed about that and uh, make comments and that criticism uh, really, really affected the way Ed uh, viewed his, uh, his opinion of his brother. Um, Ed thought that his mother was a perfect human being, and he regarded her as a saint on earth. Um, but, uh, you know, it later came to a head. On May 16, 1944, Henry died suddenly and unexpectedly at the age of 43. Uh, the story goes that Henry and Ed had been fighting a, a blaze near a marshland on their farm. And uh, there's a lot of bitter dispute about how the blaze started. Some say that it was an accident. Others claim that Ed started it uh, to to burn off some dry grass. Um, Ed claimed that uh, Henry had started it to uh, to do some stuff, and that the gust of wind came and it blew the fire out of control, and uh, became kind of a, a big uh, wildfire there in the area. The two fought to extinguish it, um, and as they blazed, fought the blaze, uh, Henry ended up going missing. So after the uh, fire's out, um, Ed goes for help, and uh, a search party is sent out to go help find Henry. 
when the uh, crews arrive at the uh, at the farm there at the site of the fire um, inexplicably Ed leads the searchers right to where Henry's body is as if he knew exactly where yes it so, was supposedly uh, according to uh, Gein's story uh, they were fighting this fire and he lost track of his brother that Henry was off somewhere and he they got separated and he didn't know where he was at uh, and like you said he went into town you know brought back the police and the searchers and was like I don't know where he's at except for right over here you know basically like, take some let's go the look body. follow me yeah <laughs> follow me oh there he is follow me I don't know right where he's at um, you know and there's some controversy too about the body because uh, they never really definitively determined cause of death um, but kind of rumor has it and I, I guess you can really only take it as rumor that he had some strange bruising about his head that was unexplained. Um, and so there's been some speculation uh, that there may have been some foul play involved there. I saw that the official cause of death was listed as asphyxiation due to being overcome by smoke, and then he fell and hit his head is what, they, what they're saying happened. A couple years later, they, it was, I mean, what's obvious to us now, to them, they're like, there's no signs of foul play here. Let's, it's, he just fell and hit his head because he inhaled the smoke. Case closed. Let's go. Kind of small town, Andy Griffith. It seems like it's like an Andy Griffith type town, you know, Mayberry. Very much so. Just a very rural farming community. And, you know, they're going to go for what the easiest uh, explanation is. And in right. a town like that, the easiest explanation is it was an accident, not that we have a serial killer in our midst. <laughs> Accidents happen on farms. Plus, everybody likes Henry and George. Uh, I mean, Henry and uh, Ed. and Ed. So, I mean, why would you suspect... Yeah, they're just uh, kind of slightly he, off. He babysat my little girl last week. Exactly. He's a good kid. So, anyway, um, just a little bit about that. So, uh, just like his father, George, um, there was really no outpouring of grief from Ed or Augusta. Ed was happy he could finally have his beloved mother to himself. He adored her. She was the backbone of his life. And he saw her as invincible. So, it's a huge shock to him. Uh, when she becomes ill and he rushes her to the hospital in his truck and it's confirmed that she had suffered a massive stroke. Um, Ed stayed by her bedside in the hospital for hours on end and eventually she was discharged. But she wasn't the same strong and formidable person that she used to be. And um, Ed had to give her around-the-clock care. And it's, it's thought that seeing his mother in this convalescent state was an exhilaration to him. Uh, because he had a chance to prove to her that he was a dutiful son and that he would somehow gain, gain more and more of her affection. But it didn't quite happen that way. She did recover somewhat um, and was almost back to her full self, but she never showed him any gratitude for, for the care that he gave her, and that really, really hurt him. Um, you know, i got to say, his mom seems like a really sweet lady. Um, I, I can just visualize that she's the type of woman that no matter what he did, it was not good enough. Uh, everything he does a sinful way um, and obviously he probably grew up wanting like any kid does love and affection and approval from his parents you know his dad's an alcoholic ass uh, who beats him on a regular basis mom's kind of a zealot and again every single thing he does is a failure every single thing he does is not good enough um, meanwhile being drilled into him that every the ways of the world are wicked and so he's got to be in a spot where he's trying to do anything he can to win the love and approval that anybody mom, wants. You know, I mean, you hear kind of the adage of, you know, did you not get enough hugs as a kid? Um, in this case, it might actually be a 
a true statement um, because every kid wants approval from their adult. Well, and he was already her favorite, though. I mean, like Henry got shafted when it came to the love, you know, and she decided that she was going to focus her attention on Ed and everything. Yeah, but I still but can't still imagine that she's not. Enough. Uh, she, she strikes me as the kind of woman who's probably never satisfied. Um, you know, even though Ed was probably, like you said, her favorite, I still suspect that she constantly belittled him and badgered him and pointed out his shortcomings regardless. Uh, and it's one of those cases where being the favorite might not necessarily be the best thing because uh, you're also the target. He was the most, had the most expectations on him. Right. And I think of her, I keep thinking of, uh, have you ever seen the movie Mommy Dearest? I've heard of the movie Mommy Dearest. And she Dearest. Like, freaks out like, no wire hangers! My wife will love that reference. She makes that comment sometimes. Anyway. Um, or uh, in uh, Carrie, her mom was was that way. That's a perfect example, yeah. actually, from Carrie. Um, uh, that she was, everybody's just out to, 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 to defile you. And and, and, and Carrie's kind of the, the scapegoat for mom's anger. And, you know, and not to get off on a sidetrack, but it kind of makes me wonder what those kind of, what makes those people tick. Uh, but as you can see with... Uh, at Gein, basically, you can seriously damage a child. Yeah, you can. So, so moms, love love your kids. Just, just, just love them. Hugs, and, lots any, of hugs, lots of hugs. Anyway, um, so thanks to Ed's care, he uh, she recovered, was mostly back to her old angry self. In uh, 1945, she accompanied Ed to a nearby farm to uh, pick up some straw, and as they drove into the yard. The farmer and his wife were out in uh, the front yard having a heated argument as the man had beaten a puppy to death. And the sight of the farmer's wife in the yard, she didn't care that they were having a fight. The fact that his wife was out in the yard just outraged Augusta. Uh, he, she viewed her as a harlot and it upset her so much and she just couldn't let it go that a week later she suffered another stroke and uh, she actually died on December 29th, 1945. Actually, it wasn't his wife. She was mad because she wasn't his wife, and she had no business being there. Who even better? That's right. The plot thickens. It's funny that she was she was worried about how men treated women and viewed women, and how her sons would view women, but yet at the same time, the way she viewed other women was probably just as bad, if not worse. I get the impression with her, though, that nobody is good enough uh, for her standards. Like, she's the only one who's good enough for her standards, and everybody, except for her, falls short. Right. So that's, that's a little backstory into Ed up, up, to where, uh, up to where he started to live alone. Now, it was said that when his mom died, um, that's kind of where it's believed that Ed snapped. Um, it was reported that at her funeral, he actually cried like, uh, the, it was described as crying like a, a little boy. Uh, whose mommy had just died. I mean, just kind of over the top, freaked out um, that, that mommy was gone because mom was his whole world. Um, in fact, uh, I'm going to jump just ahead uh, just a little bit, but later when they searched his home, they found that mom's room was uh, kept in pristine condition. Um, it was well-maintained. All her stuff was there. It was kind of almost a shrine, a memorial to, to crazy mom. To, to Crazy Ma Gein. Well, it wasn't just her room. It was anywhere that she frequented. Like, any space that was hers was kept in pristine condition. Mm-hmm. Whereas the rest of the house was a different story, but we'll get into that in a minute. He pretty much just lived in in the kitchen, in his bedroom, 
in the hallway there and everything else was boarded up and kept as pristine as she would have had it when she was alive. Right. No, nobody messes with Ma's stuff. On the morning of... Uh, so Ed lives alone and uh, he keeps to himself uh, a bit more. Um, on the, He does go into town every once in a while. On uh, the morning of November 16th, 1957... Um, the Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Worden disappeared and um, a Plainfield resident reported that uh, the hardware store's truck had been driven out from the rear of the building around 9.30am the hardware store was closed the entire day some of the residents believed that this was because of the deer hunting season and so what happens in Plainfield I guess it's like really good deer territory Uh, some of the pictures I saw were of like all these men out there, and they had like twenty deer all on one giant uh, rod, all hanging. It's like it's like a deer festival, and all the men go out and go out and go deer hunting. Well, when I was a kid, um, I grew up in the thriving metropolis of Payson, Utah, and uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, the deer hunt was a huge deal. Everybody went deer hunting. Did they have any stoplights when you were a kid? Have any what? Any stoplights in Payson when you were a kid? Uh, not when I was first a kid. They weren't invented yet. Uh, yeah, as a dude out there with the torch. Uh, they had the stop sign at that at that tee. <laughs> right. No, they actually uh, they did put one stoplight in when I was a kid. But um, kind of where I'm going with this is when I was a kid in the late 70s or early 80s, right. um, the deer hunt was a huge deal and everybody, I mean, you just basically went down to the local hardware store, you bought your deer tag and you went deer hunting. That's just what you did. Uh, if you didn't deer hunt, you're kind of an outsider and a weirdo. Uh, and I imagine the Plainsfield is very similar in that it's a rural farming community. So when the deer hunt comes along, I imagine everybody gets in their pick 'em up truck uh, with their thirty out six to go out and sh- shoot them a whitetail. Um, so, like you said, everybody in town, for the most part, uh, hit the road to go deer hunting. I mean, it was a it was a big deal. Right. So there's her son comes home. Bernice's son comes home. He's actually the deputy sheriff. Um, his name is Frank Warden. He comes to the store around five p.m. to find the store's cash register open. And bloodstains on the floor. And uh, Frank uh, discovers Ed Gain had been in the store the, the night before his mother's disappearance. And uh, that he was supposed to come back the next morning for a gallon of antifreeze. Yeah, I think he's there looking for some antifreeze when he went in the day right. before. And the sales slip for a gallon of antifreeze was the last receipt written in the little receipt book by uh, Bernice um, on the morning that she had disappeared. On the evening of the same day, Get- Gain was arrested at... Uh, in a way, at a grocery store there in uh, the west end of Plainfield. Now, what's kind of interesting with that, if I can go into that just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and by today's uh, legal standards, uh, I think they would have had a hard time getting any kind of conviction on Ed Gein. So the sheriff and the deputies went up to Gein's farm uh, to kind of figure out what was what was up. Uh, and they got out there, and the house is, has no plumbing, has no electricity, uh, but it didn't appear that anybody was home. So modern police work, you would probably sit on the house or you would get a warrant for the house or do something along those lines. But since Ed wasn't home and they thought he might be a suspect, well, what do you do? You start poking around. (laughs) So they end up uh, going into the shed that's on the property. um, And they walk in and it's dark. Uh, And as they walk in, they're kind of, you know, using their flashlights looking around on the ground. And something bumped into one of the deputies. Um, and as he got his flashlight and swung it up, uh, they actually found the body of so Bernice, Bernice Warden. Yeah, yeah. They, they found her hung up like a deer, uh, basically uh, feet up, uh, kind of spread apart on like meat hooks. Um, she was gutted like a deer. Her head was missing. 
Um, it was like he was uh, dressing her out like you would if you'd shot a deer, uh, which I'm sure freaked out the sheriff and deputies. Uh, and so because of this, they proceeded to go and actually search the farmhouse. Yeah, it says she was shot with a twenty two caliber rifle, and then just her body was just mutilated. Did it say where she was shot at? Uh, it doesn't say. But yeah, but. so her head was off and she's dressed out. Uh, so then they went to the home, and this is where things get really creepy. It's really gross. Can we just run through the list of what they found? Yeah, let's uh, run through if, it. If you want to see pictures, so here's another thing that was really I thought was really... If you really want to see pictures, you're a sick bastard. Sad and interesting. Um, at the time, the, the rules for the media wasn't quite what they are today. And so there are actually quite a few photos that were taken in the house of all of the different things that they found due to uh, reporters and, and whatnot. I say, if I remember right, and I didn't run across this in my research, but uh, if I remember right, they actually invited press to the house to take right. photos during the So you would actual never do that now, right? That's yeah. all... Hey, newspaper guys, get over here. Get a load of this. Come take a picture of this so we can't use it in court because it's... <laughs> Again, I think their rules were a little bit looser in those days because the whole discovery of the body in and of itself would be tossed out by today's legal standards. But uh, anyway, so just a, just a small list of some of the things that they found. Um, they found whole human bones and fragments of bones. There was a waste basket made of human skin. There was human skin covering several chair seats. And like I said, you can find pictures of these things if you're morbid enough you want to see them. They're not pretty. Uh, he had skulls on bed, bed posts. Uh, female skulls, some of them with the tops sawn off. He had bowls that he'd made from human skulls. Um, they're like, used them as soup bowls. Uh, he had a corset made from a female torso, uh, skinned from the shoulders to the waist, so it had the breasts and everything on it. They actually referred to it as the mammary vest. It was a vest that he would put on that basically had boobs on it uh, that he could wear around the house and pretend like he was a woman uh, with boobs because he had yeah. this vest he made out of he had uh, skin. leggings made from human skin from women's legs. Um, he'd made uh, masks from the skin of female heads. Uh, Mary Ho- so there was another uh, somebody, uh, a woman who had been a uh, bar owner that had gone missing a couple of years before. Nobody ever figured out what had happened to her. Now, this was an interesting story. Do you mind if I tell it? Yeah, tell it. So as the deputies are going through the house, um, you know, and they're seeing all this, you know, furniture made out of bones. They're seeing, you know, upholstery done with human skin, uh, human skin lampshades. Uh, you know, these fun camel soup, soup bowls made out of human skulls, uh, the mammary vest, the leggings. Uh, one of the deputies comes across a paper sack, and inside he sees uh, like a clump of hair. And so he kind of, and he's, the deputy later says he doesn't know kind of what possessed him to do it. But he reaches into the sack, grabs his hair, pulls it out, and it was, they recognized it as this bartender who had disappeared two years prior. Uh, Gein had actually taken her, or Gein had taken her face and basically skinned her face off uh, with the hair, and so he basically created a human mask using this woman's face uh, and was keeping it in this paper sack. Had uh, hooks in it and uh, string, uh, twine, that went around the back so that it would be like a, a strap to hold the back of it on, to hold it around the back of his head. Uh, and not to get gruesome, but it was said that he uh, took, uh, like, Women's genitals that he'd removed. I'm uh, getting to those. Are you getting to those? I'll, let, me don't, those. Let, let me don't stop you. Go yeah. Ahead, so uh, they found her face in a paper bag. Um, they found Mary Hogan's skull in a box. They found Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack. And, you know, I mean, she'd only been dead, what, a day? Yeah, a day. 
Um, Bernice Warden's heart was in a plastic bag in front of uh, his uh, pot-bellied stove. They found nine vulvas in a shoebox. Um, they found a young girl's dress and the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old. They found a belt made from female human nipples. They found four noses, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. So like the drawstring that you, the string you pull to open your curtains has a pair of women's lips hanging on the edge of that. You know, a nice little uh, pull tab there. They found a lampshade made of skin from a human face and uh, fingernails and, and female fingers um, in a box. I bet that's a fun home teaching visit. Right. And for, for those who are not in Utah, that's when uh, church members come visit your house and teach you. Um, so yeah. where, where it gets interesting is, so you're looking at it, there's all these different victims here, right? Well, most of them, and, and uh, you know, he, uh, when he was questioned, he told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, I mean, granted, like, like I said, this is in 1957 that they, they uh, went to his house. I believe that, yeah. So, um, from 47 to 52, he made as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three local graveyards to exhume recently buried bodies. Um, And he said that when he would go, he'd be like in a daze-like state. And on about 30 of those visits, he claimed that he came out of the daze while at the cemetery and left the grave in a good order and returned home empty-handed. On the other occasions, he dug up the graves of the recently buried middle-aged women uh, that he thought resembled his mother, and he took the bodies home, where he tanned their skins to make his paraphernalia. Sometimes, uh, a lot of times, he would just watch the obituaries, and so he would know who died, and if they looked right and things looked right, then yeah, he would go and he would. Uh, yeah, as soon as it got dark, he was in the in the old station wagon with his shovel uh, to go body to... snatching. We did, we did a whole episode on that, right? So, uh, and so it's believed he only actually killed two people that we know of. Uh, and what was interesting is in they... Three arrest- if you count Henry. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but they arrested him, took him to jail, and initially uh, he didn't really say anything. He just kind of like, hmm, whatever, just kind of sat in jail until they confronted him with the evidence of uh, Wooden's body. And uh, at that point he basically confessed to her and the, the bartender gal. I can't remember her name. I don't have notes in front of me. Um, her name was Mary Hogan? Mary Hogan, and he admitted to those, and he's like, yep, well, whatever, I, that, I, I did it. Um, and so he basically confessed to both of those with, like, immediately, essentially, once he was, they are like, hey, we found this in your house. Oh, yep, I did that. Um, but like you said, he was, like, a firm watcher of the obituaries, and he would just, as soon as somebody died who he was interested in, you know, get the shovel, go dig him up, and uh, that was his next toy. And it was it was easy for him to pull him off too because he was uh, you know the fra- the graves freshly dug, you know, and this is before they used cement vaults and all the things that they do now. These are just wooden caskets that are placed in and covered with dirt. So you have a fresh mound of dirt. Middle of the night, he goes and digs up the body. You know, dig- opens up the casket. Um, sometimes he wouldn't take the whole body; he would just take the parts he wanted, and then leave the rest of the body. But then he would bury it back up. And, and so nobody was any the wiser. And so people had a hard time believing this when they were hearing about it. And uh, he would, uh, I, I believe that he actually identified some of the ones that he had gone to. And the family's like, no. And so they actually had to go and, and exhume the bodies to verify that he actually did do this. 
because they just had a hard time believing that he would go dig up their mom and and uh, now they were never know. able to confirm um, whether or not there's any cannibalism involved in this. Uh, I mean, the fact that a, a heart was found in a plastic bag in front of the stove is—I'd call that a clue. Um, Likely, but they were never able to actually confirm whether or not he consumed any of the body parts. Um, but there were. Do you remember how many bodies parts they found, or how many bodies they think were involved? Um, let me check on that. I don't have that actually. Um, but uh, basically, he said they went and they did exhume some of the graves. On one of them, they found um, a. Uh, there's one that he uh, failed to open when he lost his pry bar. Um, there was another one where he they found just a pry bar in the casket. Um, he did return rings and some body parts. And that also kind of helped corroborate his uh, confessions. Um, soon after his mother's death, um, he began to create a woman's suit. And so that's where that vest comes in and the leggings. Um, and it was so that he could become his mother. Um, he would literally crawl into, the, into, not necessarily her skin, but the skin that would kind of identify as his mom. He did deny having sex with any of the bodies exhumed, explaining that they smelled too bad. So at least he had some sort of sense, right? Yikes. But... Um, you know, during this uh, during a state crime lab interrogation, he also admitted to the shooting death of Mary Hogan, uh, who was the tavern owner, uh, and she disappeared in 1954. Her head was found in the house, as we said, um, but he later denied any memory of the details around her death. Um, there was a 16-year-old girl uh, whose parents were friends of Gaines, and uh, they had attended ball games and movies with him. Uh, they reported that uh, he had. Uh, the kids had reported that he had shrunken heads in his house, and he had described them as relics from the Philippines that were sent by a cousin who'd served in the islands during World War II, and that they'd, he'd sent him like, these souvenir shrunken head things. Um, but upon investigation by the police, these were determined to be human facial skins that were uh, carefully peeled from corpses, and that he had used as masks and just kind of sewed them together to make like a shrunken head. Um, he was also considered a suspect in several unsolved cases in Wisconsin, including the uh, 1953 disappearance of Evelyn Hartley, who was a uh, lacrosse babysitter. Lacrosse is the town there in Wisconsin. Right. Uh, during questioning um, by the uh, the sheriff Art uh, Schley, um, he uh, he actually reportedly assaulted Gain. Uh, banging his head and his face into a brick wall, just trying to get that confession out of him. Again, a different time. So Gaines' <laughs> confession, his initial confession, is actually now ruled in, inadmissible in court because he was it was basically beat out of him. Um, Schley actually died of heart failure at age 43 in 1968, um, before Gaines' trial ever actually came to fruition. Uh, many who knew Schley said that uh, he was traumatized by the horror of Gaines' crimes, and through the whole process, and in this, along with the fear of having to testify, especially about assaulting Gein, um, he just the stress had caused his death. And one of his friends actually uh, said that uh, he's actually the victim of another, the last victim of Ed Gein, um, just as surely as if he had butchered him. That sounds more like the victim of too many cheeseburgers, but and stress <laughs> and stress. Um... Did you have something you wanted to add on that, Tim? You just kept bouncing back and forth, calling him Gain and Gein. Gain, Gein, tomato, tomato. Um, so what was interesting is that when uh, 
Gein went to trial, um, they actually found him mentally incompetent uh, to stand trial. Uh, basically, they did a lot of psychological examinations and found out that he had like a weird mother fixation, which obviously we know now after learning all about him. Um, and they basically said, hey, you know, this guy's not culpable to stand a criminal trial. So they essentially sentenced him to uh, stay in a criminal uh, mental hospital uh, until he could be fit to stand trial. So a kind of a modern insane asylum, if you will, uh, or a hospital for the criminally insane, uh, which we still do today. We still send people who are nuts to a state hospital until they're mentally capable of standing trial for their crimes. Um, it's said that when he was in the hospital, um, he was actually fairly normal, uh, would play games, was kind of quiet, wouldn't really talk to other uh, residents in the hospital. He'd just go sit in the corner and do his thing. Um, he one, liked it there. Yeah, I say one of the actual uh, supervisors there at the hospital would have conversations with him, said he's a pretty normal guy for the most part, just how he behaved at the hospital. Uh, but he said when uh, there's a full moon, uh, he would get really kind of goofy and start talking about women and what he'd like to do to women and just get really kind of over the top. Uh, I believe the term is a lot extra um, until the full moon went down, at which point he would kind of return to being a, a normal, and I'm using my air quotations, a normal uh, human being, if you will, um, in this mental hospital. Uh did you have anything you want to add on with that, Mike? Um, not really. Um, they they did end up selling his house and all the things. Uh, his how his car uh, was bought by a uh, woman. I forget her last name, but her first name was Bonnie. But she did sideshows and she charged twenty five cents per view to go look at his car at the various state farm or state fairs that she'd go around to. Um, the house was sold, um, but was immediately burned down. Well, uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't quite sold. So what happened with that is that they were going to do an auction, a property auction at the, the Gein farm. Um, and so they had an auction scheduled to sell off his property. I wonder what a human face lamp goes for. Um, but they, uh, had an auction to sell the property scheduled for, I believe it was a Saturday. Um, I said the question mark because I'm not hundred percent sure, but the next morning the town kind of woke to an orange glow in the sky went out there and found that the home had been completely burned to the ground, the home and all his possessions. Um, they actually did an investigation to try and find out what um, had caused the fire, but they came back inconclusive. They couldn't find any uh, reason for the blaze. So it's still unknown whether somebody in town set it on fire, uh, whether it was... Actually, any- no, actually, I, I'm reading the notes here. So it says a deputy marshal reported that a rubbish fire had been set 75 feet away from the house by a cleaning crew tasked with disposing of trash ah, further, and that the hot coals uh, were recovered from the spot where the bonfire was at, where they're burning trash. Okay, um, so my, my, my notes didn't have that. However, however, there was no like fire traveling across the grass or anything towards the house. There was no evidence that the fire had actually spread to the house. It was okay. just one of those convenient things. Just kind of like that fire where they were burning, you know, with Henry and, and Ed and conveniently uh, ends up being a murder site. I honestly can't help but think that somebody in town had to help that fire start. Um, you know, the notoriety of Ed Gein and I right. mean, because it was all over the news. I mean, he was infamous and, you know, the media was all over his story. Um, 
I can't imagine that there wasn't somebody, some good old boy in town who said, you know what, we don't need this attention. We don't want this attention. Um, I'm just going to go over there tonight before this auction happens and just burn this son of a bitch to the ground. Right. Um, that makes more sense to me than anything. And the rubbish fire would certainly be a very good, easy cover to uh, just take a pile of hot coals from the rubbish fire with a shovel, toss them into the house, and uh, walk away and let nature take its course. Yeah, they suspected that there was arson involved, but they really could never officially determine it, So they and they just kind of let it go. And when they actually told Ed about it, he shrugged and said, just as well. Yeah. Just didn't really care. Um, his uh, 1949 Ford sedan, so I did find it, that he used to haul the bodies of his victims, and that's why it's so, everyone's, you know, because he used to stick bodies in the trunk, uh, was sold at a public auction for $760.00. Uh, which is about the equivalent of $6,000 in 2018, so last year. Uh, he sold it to a carnival side shop operator, Bunny Gibbons, and she charged uh, 25 cents per admission to see it. Um, they actually put like a tent around it, so I mean, you had to actually pay money and go in and to, to see it. Uh, so it wasn't just easily visible to the public. You had to actually physically pay and go in to, to get an eyeful of his car. Um, Gein, make sure I say it right, Gein was only tried for one murder, and that was of uh, uh, Bernice Warden, although he did admit to killing Mary Hogan, um, a um, psychologist, a psych- psychiatrist that he had been working with, did uh, testify that uh, Gein had told him that um, he didn't know whether the killing of Bernice was intentional or accidental, but that Gein had told him that while he had examined a gun at Warden's store. Apparently he was going to sell a gun that he'd had. Um, the gun went off and it uh, actually killed Bernice. Um, Gain testified later um, that after trying to load a bullet into the rifle, it just discharged. He hadn't really aimed a rifle at her, um, but he didn't remember anything that happened that morning. But yeah, and then he remembers that, but he doesn't remember anything else. Oops. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, I just I accidentally killed somebody. Let's go make a... Oh, a fresh one. Yes. <laughs> so um, he died in July, ni- July 26, 1984 at um, the Mendota Mental Hospital. Respiratory failure, if I remember Respiratory correctly. failure due to, um, to lung cancer. Oh, okay. I didn't he know was, that He cancer. was uh, 77 years old. Um, over the years, he was actually buried next to his uh, parents. And over the years, souvenir seekers chipped pieces off of his gravestone at there at the Plainfield Cemetery until the stone itself was stolen in 2000. And it was uh, recovered in 2001 near Seattle and was placed in storage at the uh, Washura County Sheriff's Department. Uh, it's now marked. It's not. Um, the gravesite is now unmarked, but it's not unknown. Everybody knows where it is. He's right between his parents. Well, they and said his that, brother in the cemetery. They said that a lot of times flowers and notes and stuff show up all the time at his gravesite. Because some of you people out there are just sick. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd be curious to know what people are leaving him flowers. and uh, uh, To me, it's just that's almost as creepy as having... The same people that send letter, love letters to Ted Bundy and want to get married to him while he's in prison. And the same women that idolize Charles Manson and want to marry Charles Manson while he's in prison with a swastika on his forehead and... Yeah, I, I don't even know, man. It's a sick world. You know what's interesting, though? That house, uh, as paranormal investigators, could you guys imagine investigating that home? Or could you even imagine the... No, because it burned down. But if it hadn't... hadn't, If it hadn't. 
or could you even imagine living in that home or just the issues that would be tied to that home? I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there's even issues just tied to the land itself after that kind of stuff. You can't tell me that desecrating multiple human bodies wouldn't draw in like a type three spirit uh, in an awful hurry. Or just, a, and part of me wondered, you know, if he, and I, I wonder this, I wondered this back when we were talking about uh, Amityville, you know, about um, whether there was any kind of demonic influence or possession involved, and if that might have played into some of um, Ed's kind of insanity, if, if there could have been anything. I mean, obviously he's he's fits the profile of somebody who becomes susceptible. He's bullied. He's got some weird, crazy stuff going on. And, you know, nobody in their right mind... I mean, nobody just decides to, I'm going to go start making lamps out of people. Right. As you said, there's a whole level of crazy involved in this one that you don't really see with other serial killers. I mean, you have Ted Bundy who, you know, killed lots of women. Um, you know, you got your Jeffrey Dahmer who killed and, like, cannibalized dudes. Um, but or, or even Gacy, you know, just, you know, whole different... Uh, and with those, it's like I can't relate to them because I don't relate, but I can see what they were... I'm glad you I can't s- relate to them. I can see their motives, though, right? Right. So it's like a rapist is somebody, oh, he's uh, attracted to women, he gets off on the power and committing that, that naughty taboo stuff. But I don't... I just can't fathom... I'm kind of at a loss of words. It's like, this just goes way beyond... Yeah, arts and craft time with it, dead bodies. Yeah. You know, who wants to do crafts? Um, now, what's interesting, though, about uh, Gein is... I'm not sympathizing by by, by, by any, with any of those, by the way. I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> I just... I, I was trying to understand where people go nuts. Gein's acts were so kind of horrifically over the top that it actually inspired a whole bunch of pop culture... Uh, Spinoffs based on his acts, um, some very closely related on his acts, and some just loosely based on his acts. Um, for instance, uh, Leatherface. Uh, if anyone's ever seen the movie Leatherface, that was based very roughly on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on uh, Ed Gein. Um, Silence of the Lambs uh, was. Well, on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, there's the leather face, obviously wearing the face of a, a human person, but there was also uh, cannibalism that the family did, which, uh, like I said, they never actually proved that he was a cannibal, but I, it, I, I'm pretty sure he was. Um, but there's also several rooms in the house where they've decorated and made lamps and other stuff out of human bones and chandeliers and whatnot, so that's where they... Uh, got some of the inspiration for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now you get into, like you said, Silence of the Lambs, and you got the character of Buffalo Bill was also based on Ed Gein uh, because of the, you know, Buffalo Bill in the movie. He would kidnap larger women, uh, put them in the well, starve them. It puts lotion on its skin, or else it gets the hose again. uh, Yeah. Um, But yeah, he would would basically uh, starve them so their skin would get loose. And then he would skin them and, and wear their their skin. Uh, he'd turn them into dresses and whatnot, and that's stuff. Something that Ed Gein actually did, like you guys said, would you know he had the 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 mammary vest and and other leggings and whatnot. Um, another movie that was also uh, one of the characters he was the inspiration for was Norman Bates in Psycho. 
Um, now it said that Ed Gein heard the mo- the voice of his mother uh, even after she had passed away, and it would drive him crazy because she was just still, even though she was dead, she was still haunting him. And if you haven't seen Psycho, that's pretty much the reason why Norman Bates was the way he was. I mean, just like how skittish he was, and you know, he he was you know he had his you know spoiler alert for a movie that came out in the sixties or seventies or whenever it was. Um, you know, he had his dead mother still in a dress with a wig on in the window upstairs in the house, and you know he still heard her voice and she told him you know basically how he was a terrible person. And that's kind of where they got the inspiration for that character from, was also from Ed Gein. So those were the three major pictures that that this man was responsible for some of the characters of. There was another one, too, wasn't there, Tim? Or is it just the three? Oh, there's several. There's, like, The House of a Thousand Corpses from Rob Zombie, um, and its sequel, The Devil's Rejects, um, where he was an inspiration for that. There's one called In Light of the Moon... Um, Ed Gain, The Butcher of Plainfield in 2007. I mean, there, there's a pretty big list of, of various different ones. But uh, I bet there was actually one that there was an American filmmaker named Errol Morris and a German filmmaker, Werner Herzog, that attempted to unsuccessfully collaborate on a film project about Ed um, from 75 to 76. Um, Errol Morris actually interviewed Gain, Gein, sorry, Tim, several times and ended up spending almost a year in Plainfield interviewing dozens of locals. Um, these two had planned to secretly exhume Gein's mother from her grave just to test a theory but never followed through on it. And eventually their collaboration ended. They aborted the project and uh, never made the, the movie that they were going to. So, Yeah, so Ed Gein's got my uh, vote for creepiest serial killer of all time. Yeah, um, there's a lot of other creepy ones out there, but I think he's by far the worst. And I guess really about does serial he, killers. Does he technically classified as a serial killer I, if he's only been committed of two murders? I was about I, to say. I think you have to have three or more to be a serial killer. I was about to say. Well, if we count Henry, well, that Henry wasn't makes, actually proven. Henry makes, but Henry would make three. But what is the, what is the rule to be a serial killer? Yeah, and, and ultimately that's kind of the I guess you know as Tim brings up, and I was actually about to say that is I don't know that. Uh, whether or not he's a serial killer, he's kind of considered a serial killer. But uh, who knows? Definitely either, a serial grave robber. Either way, he's... And beyond. He's a creepy son of a bitch. See, at least the other the, the grave robbers were making money. They were selling the bodies to a medical school back when we were talking about the, the grave robbers in London. Of course. You know. Ed Gein's doing arts and craft time. It's, like, it's art. It's... Yeah. Who's got some Elmer's glue? Um, <laughs> we're going to need some Elmer's glue, some popsicle sticks, and some cotton balls, and three corpses. Um, yeah, so he, he's got my creepiest one. So, um, anything else you guys want to talk about with him before we move on? Nah, I'm, I'm all geened out. Tim, you got Stone of the Week for us? Negative. All right, well, I've got a creepy... No stones. No stones this, this week. All right. 60 hour work weeks makes little time for study. <laughs> 60 hour work week makes Tim no fun. All right, so... A lost hiker claims that ghosts saved him. A hiker who was found after being lost in the mountains of Taiwan for 10 days told rescuers he managed to survive thanks to the help from a ghost couple that guided him to safety. The strange case reportedly began back in November 10th when Song Rijong, and I probably butchered that name, uh, ventured into the wilderness of a region of the country known as Pingtung. 
At some point during the hike, he lost his way and his cell phone died, leaving him in a particularly precarious position. When Rijong did not return home that evening, his family contacted the authorities with their concerns. A massive search party consisting of 284 people, as well as 111 police and fire officials, that's a very specific number, um, and scoured the mountains where the man went hiking in hopes of locating him. Despite their best efforts, Rusing was nowhere to be found after a worrisome 10 days until he emerged from the wilderness on Wednesday morning with a rather amazing story to share. According to Rusing, he had attempted to climb a rock wall early on during his disappearance and in the process fell and lost his glasses. The lost hiker then hid in the cave for a few days until he came to the conclusion that the only way out of the predicament was to try and find his way down the mountain. When he emerged from the cavern, Ru Yang met a mysterious couple who walked with him through the forest for two hours. Suddenly, he claims they disappeared, and when he looked for them, he spotted a trail that led back to civilization. Looking back on the experience, Ru Xing was certain that the guidance of the spirit was Taiwanese people who had once inhabited the region. So he was saved by the ghosts. Well, that happens a lot. I mean, uh, oh, who is it that has the song Camouflage uh, about the soldier that... Uh, that died, saved him in a firefight. It's, oh, uh, that's a very good song. Um, I'm blanking. I know it. I, I, say, I can sing it in my mind. I'm trying to think who I... I know. I'm singing it in my head, too. Camouflage. Um, yeah, so that's it for uh, for this episode. you guys have anything you want to add? Not really. All right. Well, like I said, this will be our last episode for this season. Uh, we'll be back after the first oh, of the Stan year. Stan Ridgeway. What's that? Stan Ridgeway. Stan Ridgeway. We'll, Check it out. We'll be back... Uh, at the, well, you guys will be back uh, 2020 with new episodes, uh, some new personalities, um, maybe a little bit of, of a new direction on the show. Uh, like I said, I'm headed out. I've got some different directions in life that I'm going to go. Uh, I appreciate everybody's support uh, with this. It's been really fun. Uh, Mike and Tim are going to continue soldiering on, um, and so they're going to do an amazing job. I have no doubts. Uh, so I just want to say thank you to everybody who's listened to this point. Uh, if you guys see me out and about, give me a shout. Uh, I will be not here, but I will be around. So thanks, everybody. Uh, we came. We saw. Apparently it kicked one of our asses. Uh, that might be mine. <laughs> Have a good night, everybody. You've been listening to The Supernatural Hour at AdvancedParanormal.com. The Supernatural Hour is part of the Radio Ronin Network found at RadioRonin.com.